For four years, you marched and organized for equality and justice for our lives and for our planet. And then you voted. And you delivered a clear message. You chose hope and unity, decency, science, and yes, truth. Welcome to 10 Minutes on Democracy. That moment of democracy inspiration was Kamala Harris speaking after the results of the last election, where she prepared to become the first woman, Black American, and Indian American to serve as vice president. I'm Jason Franklin, senior advisor at One for Democracy, and today is Tuesday, November 2nd. Moving forward a year, it's election day again, with voters in many places casting votes for key state and local races, and all eyes are watching to see what they will choose this time around. This week, I'm also tracking the latest gerrymandering of our new election maps, global progress at the G20 and COP26 summits, and the latest developments on the budget package, COVID vaccines, and abortion rights. For the 2021 elections, most eyes are focused on Virginia, where Democrats are looking to defend the governorship, lieutenant governor, and attorney general, and their relatively new majority in the state House of Delegates. The race for governor is really tight amid hyper-partisan mobilizing and messaging last-minute efforts by Democrats to mobilize the youth vote in particular, and deceptive race-baiting ads from Republican Glenn Youngkin, who's tried to inspire the Trump base with dog-whistle ads and simultaneously maintain enough distance from Trump personally to engage moderates. The results in Virginia will be scrutinized in the days to come as politicals look for cues and clues about how to prepare for the 2022 midterms in a post-Trump, still-Trump political world. But frankly, there's a lot more to focus on than just Virginia today. While it's almost certain that Democratic Governor Phil Murray will win a second term in New Jersey, both parties in New Jersey are looking to score wins in the state House and state Senate, and Democrats are hoping Murphy will score a big win as a sign of momentum for their side. There's also a competitive race for a Republican-held seat on the Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which will impact future litigation on voter suppression and redistricting, as well as many other uh, issues competitive mayoral contests in Buffalo, Atlanta, Cleveland, Minneapolis, St. Petersburg, and many more cities that give clues to the political wins in key states around the country, and races for county executives, district attorneys, and sheriffs around the country that have major local impact on criminal justice reform and election administration. There's also a pair of high-profile ballot measures in Minneapolis that would replace the police department with a new Department of Public Safety as well as greatly strengthen the mayor's office. And lastly, in some key elections, like the mayoral races in Atlanta and St. Petersburg, Florida, democracy advocates are also keeping their eyes on how new voter suppression laws passed earlier this year will play out in practice as voters face new ID requirements for using mail ballots and more. There's also been a lot of development this week on gerrymandering across the country as maps are continuing to be finalized. In North Carolina, a committee on the Republican-run state Senate passed the GOP's new congressional redistricting map in a party-line vote yesterday. That gives Republicans 10 seats in the state's congressional delegation to just four for Democrats. Most significantly, 
It divides the Piedmont Triad, the urban north-central hub of North Carolina that's made up of the cities of Greensboro, Winston-Salem, and High Point, between three different districts, despite the fact that Republicans had to reunite the very same area after state courts blocked the GOP's map in 2019. Because of past changes to state redistricting laws, it's important to note in North Carolina, the Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, can't veto any of these maps. Over in Oklahoma, Republicans pulled a similar urban divide strategy with their new draft congressional map, which would make the state's only competitive seat safely read by divvying up Oklahoma City between three different districts. For the last decade, over 90% of Oklahoma County was contained in the 5th Congressional District, but the new map would put a full third of the county, a portion that voted 54-43 for Biden and includes its most heavily Latino precincts, into the 3rd and 4th districts instead. And over in Ohio, the Republican-dominated redistricting commission missed its October 31st deadline to draft a new congressional map. But this was exactly expected as it sends the process back to the state legislature. This is all part of maneuvering to gerrymander as Republican lawmakers first missed their September 30th deadline, which sent the task to the commission. And now they've missed another deadline to send it back to the legislature where the Republicans can now adopt new districts with less or even no support from Democrats, which it would have been necessary in the previous iterations and previous steps. So lots to continue to watch, but not some great developments on the gerrymandering front this week. Also, while not directly democracy developments, it's impossible to not also be looking at events unfolding at global gatherings happening in Europe this week. It was definitely a win for the Biden administration when Biden and other leaders agreed on a new corporate minimum tax, the world's most aggressive attempt yet to stop companies from sheltering profits in so-called tax havens at the G20 summit in Rome. But following that, while Biden and others spoke in somber ways about climate change and the need for decisive action at the COP26 climate summit in Glasgow, there have been very few new commitments to cut emissions. And frankly, the challenges to American democracy and the Biden administration and our polarized domestic political environment really undercut the ability of the administration to push for harder global action. We have seen some developments. More than 100 countries, including Brazil, China, and the U.S., did pledge to end deforestation by 2030. And 90 countries will sign a U.S. and EU-sponsored global methane pledge, which includes half of the world's top 30 methane emitters. That methane pledge actually might be easier to fulfill as it mostly involves intentional work to plug leaks in oil and gas infrastructure and other human-caused sources, including agriculture, versus the broader social and behavioral change needed to cut carbon. But on that carbon front, the biggest new carbon pledge out of COP26 has come from Prime Minister Modi that India will reach net zero carbon emissions by 2070 after they've long resisted taking a net zero pledge at all. But... Environmentalists note that 2070 is 20 years past the 2050 deadline to avoid the worst impacts from climate change, and it comes amid many observations that most of the pledges to even reach that 2050 deadline are far behind. So largely a dispiriting experience at COP26 so far. Back in the U.S., looking forward, looking at issues that will continue to unfold and impact our democracy in the weeks and months to come. So we all know children ages 5 to 11 could start receiving COVID-19 vaccines as soon as tomorrow, but many parents, even those who've gotten the vaccine themselves, are reporting their hesitation to get children vaccinated when most coronavirus cases in youngsters are mild. 
This will further complicate and polarize the ongoing response to COVID. Similarly, while negotiations have been fast and furious as congressional leaders are trying to finalize the social and climate spending package, that also got more complicated, where yesterday, Senator Manchin demanded more time to evaluate the economic and fiscal impact of the now $1.85 trillion bill. And he criticized liberals in his party for what he called an all-or-nothing stance, which left many people wondering again if this major bill might be about to be derailed. Last thing I'd mention for this week was, of course, the Supreme Court has fast-tracked arguments on Texas's fetal heartbeat bill. And questions from conservative justices yesterday during the hearings hint that they actually may be inclined to allow abortion providers to pursue legal challenges to the law. During oral arguments, both Kavanaugh and Barrett seemed reluctant to accept the Texas state arguments about the constitutionality of its design. Kavanaugh noted that the law has a, quote, loophole that's been exploited, and Barrett was questioning about how it tries to even avoid the courts. But this would be far from a victory. Even if they decide to allow a challenge, that decision might not come until December and then would simply send the case back to the lower court for hearings. Whether a stay in enforcing the law would then be granted is anyone's guess, but it will certainly keep the fight about reproductive rights at the center of our political debate and the elections in the months to come. So that's all for this week's quick review of key democracy developments. Next week, we'll look back at the election results and all of these other continuing developments. I'm Jason Franklin. Today is Tuesday, November 7th. And right now, I just want to say thank you for listening to 10 Minutes on Democracy.